Welcome to WorkQuest and Pay. In this podcast, we look at the future of work and pay through the lenses of both employers and employees. And we explore practical scenarios and potential innovative ways forward. I'm your host, Laura Whitfler, ADP's External Communications Manager in the UK. So today we are talking about energized workplaces and in particular, the role which self-managed organizational structures can play in creating these. We'll dive into some tangible examples and look at the topic through COVID lenses. So joining us today, we are very delighted to have TEDx speaker, uh, Perry Timms. Perry is founder and believe it or not, chief energy officer at PTHR, a micro consultancy with the ambition to create better business for a better world. Also a chartered member of CIPD and named by HR Magazine as one of the most influential HR thinkers for three consecutive years, Perry has also written two books amongst all the other things he's been doing. So one of the books is called Transformational HR and sure enough, the other one's called The Energized Workplace. So you're very welcome to this podcast, Perry. Thank you, Laura. Very pleased to be here. Yeah, so we can't wait to hear your insight and ideas. Um, But we also have to join the conversation today, uh, Jeff Phipps, General Manager from ADP UK in Ireland. Hello and welcome back, Jeff. Hi, Laura. So there is lots to talk about today, um, but I think we will dive straight in by really, I suppose, digesting one of the statements that come out of your book, um, The Energized Workplace, Um, because I really love this and I thought it was so ambitious and so relevant also in terms of sort of the pandemic in the past 12 months. So you talk about uh, in your book, Perry, how designing so that people flourish and their energy is sustainably managed and responsibly regenerated is one of the challenges of our and any time. So presumably you wrote that before the pandemic. Um, So I'd really love to, I suppose, understand a little bit more why you felt the need to put out such a powerful statement and also why you thought there was sort of a need for a reset, because you talk about this phenomenal, um, which you coin yourself as peak work way before the pandemic ever hit. Could you sort of share with us and with listeners what you mean by that peak Mm. work concept? I sure can, Laura. Thank you. So you're right. The book was conceived and written before COVID-19. And I did get to do some of the final editing of it, almost like just some of the tidying up that you do as an author during the pandemic. And I recall vividly when the um, the publisher sent me through the sort of final version to just run through, I quite literally put it up on screen and looked at it like through my fingers as like, have I made a real faux pas here or is this going to be relevant or more relevant or not at all? And as I read through it, and it was quite some time after I'd written it that I got to read it through again, I actually had the sense that it was more relevant. Uh, Because what I was starting to see during the early stages of the reaction to work from home and uh, furlough and so on um, was an increasing some of those things like peak work as a concept that you described. So, yeah, I was quite reassured by the fact that it still had relevance, if not more relevance. But the, the, the conception of it. 
uh, was when I started to look into what really does make people come to life in their work. And so I researched companies who were um, describing themselves as the joy factory and who had happiness indexes and who were incredibly vibrant about the description of their company as a place where people come to life. And yet I could see through statistics that, um, you know, the Gallup surveys of this world where engagement was still very stubbornly low and only a certain percentage of the workforce would describe themselves as, as well engaged and lots of people would say they weren't engaged. So I just couldn't square this dilemma thinking surely we should have it right by now. The conditions that we work in are quite supportive and privileged and we've got additional benefits, we've got flexible rights to um, ask for flexible working and so on, yet we still seem to have high levels of things like stress and well-being was increasingly on the agenda. And when I did some research into that, I found staggering amounts um, uh, of loss, I suppose, and, and what I described on a TEDx stage as crimes against humanity, because rather than finding better ways to work, and if I transport myself back to the 1930s and John Maynard Keynes, the economist's declaration that we'd only be working 15 hours a week about now, I saw people regularly put in, you know, three times that uh, uh, on a regular basis. So I thought to myself, well, hang on a minute, what is going on here? And, and so this concept of peak work came from the fact that I saw what we'd done in the workplace. We had um, given people more tasks and responsibilities to do in the name of efficiency. So, you know, we lost things like typing pools in favour of personal computers. So people were doing their own diaries and their own emails and their own production of documents and so on. Now, that's not to say that those roles um, shouldn't have been phased out by technology, but people's work stack, as I started to describe it was just increasing all the time um, and, and so I thought hang on a minute we've not taken anything away from people we've given people management responsibility of teams and projects to run and compliance checks to do and different channels to run communication on so I thought we're not taking anything away so I, I just thought that's it we, we've hit like peak work there's no more work we can do on top of what we've now been given um, which explains why people are so tired and so labored and stressed and therefore that's making people ill and then when I found the term karoshi in Japan which means literally work yourself to death I thought well that's it that's too much um, and Jeff Pfeffer's book, um, Dying for a Paycheck, again, just kind of underscored it. It's a, it was a quiet pandemic, I called it. And then, of course, we had a real one. Presumably, you know, it, it's gotten even worse in some cases. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, so the work I've been doing with clients, so let's talk about that as a kind of real practical live example of it. Um, and we've heard about this Zoom fatigue and, and so mm. on and so forth. Quite literally, people are back to back to back to back on yeah. calls and schedules. And, and I've often wondered, why is that? And it's because we've missed those serendipitous conversations that we would have or those little walk up from your chair, go to somebody else's workstation and just say, have you seen anything from this client yet? So all that's now been sort of programmed into a schedule because we don't have that incidental contact. So we have we tried to replicate what we did in the sort of real world into a virtual world. But our only mechanism to do that is to formalize it and to book appointments. And it's become torturous. 
Um, so in, in the client work I've been doing, people have um, core roles and responsibilities. They have projects which they're calling run at the side of their desk. And so their work stack has got even bigger. And so they are logging on at seven in the morning because they're not commuting and they are logging off at nine o'clock at night because they're not commuting. Um, and, you know, I've experienced some of this, but I am seeing people on for a lot longer than they used to be. Now, the commute itself was sometimes quite a torture for people. So I understand that, that there's a convenience of commuting from one room to another, but they're just not punctuating their day anymore. And I think that adds to the sense of overload. The other thing that clients have been reporting back to me when I've been working with them is they never seem to complete anything. It's just this constant mush of work. There's never a start, middle and an end. There's never a celebration. There's never a learning conversation. It's just right onto the next thing, onto the next thing. Mm. And I think that's been as a reaction to the pandemic, which is quite literally um, everything's under threat and in jeopardy. And I've got to show that I'm adding value. So I'm just going to pop up wherever I can. I'm going to do whatever whatever's needed to show I'm visible. And that's come at a price, I think, in terms of focus, attention and well-being. So um, I'm pleased that now we're starting to see and hear people who take walking meetings, who take the dog out, who split the day. Um, but you're right, it has amplified the intensity, I think, of work by being stuck in one place. I mean, we'll get into a few things here. I mean, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said there and uh, um, both post kind of during and sort of, sort of pre, during and post pandemic. I, I'm curious about a um, couple of things. Um, one is about presenteeism. And uh, and let's be honest, you know, people are fearful of what's going to happen. We've seen unemployment go up. So, you know, people are, you know, so the presenteeism element. And I think that joins up also with just are people even working in, you know, uh, we might get into sort of meetings and emails, um, but are they even working in a particularly smart way? Uh, I'll call it smart way because I think, you know, I don't know whether, where, whether that's they feel almost cajoled to turning up to these things that, they're just sitting there. Um, and uh, I, I, for me, I thought about this yesterday, actually, Perry, and yeah. I, I wonder, it feels very rare that there isn't a meeting where you have to say to somebody, you know, can you go on mute? And the go yeah. on mute is typically because you can hear them hammering away at their keyboard. Yeah. What I'd really rather say is, can you go to somewhere and do the keyboard stuff yeah. and just not bother being here? Because I think you'll tell me more than I know, but the science yeah. tells us we can't actually multitask. Yeah. So anyone who thinks they can type whilst listening is um, deluding themselves. I'm pretty sure that I'm right in saying that. Yeah. So I'm just curious about this, how yeah. we're working and yeah. whether there are just better ways to run our day and more productive ways to run our day. And, and also this sort of, I think there's a, Definitely, I have concerns about presenteeism and this yeah. kind of feeling that I need to be there and need to be seen to be, mm. you know, one of the rectangles on the mm. ever, one of the mm. rectangles on the screen. Mm. So I think you're right. I think because these are quite new um, uh, processing sort of channels for us, we have made some over exaggerated uh, aspects to it. You're absolutely right. So I think initially there was this, oh my goodness, if I'm not there, I'm out of the loop, and that could be dangerous, as you say, for a number of reasons. And then I think we've realised that. Uh, you know, A, you're right, some meetings could be an email. Uh, B, uh, some emails should be a meeting. Um, but, but I think we've gotten very... <laughs> we've, we've gotten very lazy about how we do these things. And, and, and so I think, yeah, I've heard of punishing schedules that people have been put through uh, and they're questioning what value they're adding. So I, I recall um, 
uh, back in my corporate days, actually, meeting culture was was rife. And so we um, tried to introduce a rule where if you went to a meeting and within about the first 10 minutes, you couldn't add any value and you really couldn't justify why you were there. You had permission to just get up and walk out. We called it the law of two feet based on open space technology um, processes. I almost think you're right. There is a concept in the online meeting world, uh, which is where everybody could check in and just say, look, I'm, I'm here because I'm here because and, and if you can't validate that then it's almost like well why are you here so we've got to get better at, at different meeting protocols I think for a start because we are again trying to squeeze into a digital channel what we used to do in the working world um, and we should start from a point of how can we do it differently I'll give you an example um, so my team are dispersed uh, anyway uh, so we were quite you know, convinced by the remote working method. And so when COVID hit, it's like, well, no different for us. But we started to creep into a habit of over meetings. So we we created a new way of doing it where somebody would record either an audio or a video file and then send it to the rest of the team and say, look, these are the things I needed to tell you about. And then we watched that and then we responded in kind or we said, we only need five minutes now to make a decision. So we took an asynchronous approach to some meetings that we couldn't all be at. Some of it was due to the team working part-time, working patterns in different ways. So we found a way to hack that. And, and, and I've done that with clients. I've said, look, don't jump on another call with me. Record an audio file. I'll listen to it. And then I'll play back what I think my answer is. And a few of them grew to love it and started to develop that with their teams. So I think we have to not replicate what we did in the real world. We have to reimagine it for a virtual world, to your point on the habits and the digital presenteeism and all that kind of stuff. Um, we should start from a point of it's different. How can we do it differently? And, and, you, and you touch there on, you know, I think one of the things as I hear you, and I have a suspicion anyone listening to this will go, it's all very well, Perry, you saying that um, where the meeting's not adding any value, you're going to get up and walk mm. out after 10 minutes. Mm. But I think a lot of people are going to say, but if my boss called that meeting yes. and, and said, yeah. this is an important meeting, you need to be here. I wonder how many people are going to be brave enough. So, but that leads me to the, the point of, um, of trust and the nature of right relationships, which I know you make, you know, this, this kind of is a fundamental point in the book or foundational point in the book um, for these things to work really well. Um, and I, I was, I've been on a couple of calls this morning with people and I, I, I think I'm, I used to worry in the past that I was, almost too human, you know, how, mm. how are the kids, how are this? Mm. And, you know, I was worried mm. that people would think, when's he going to get to the business stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but again, I think that the, the science, at least I've listened to people like Adam Grant, et cetera, yeah. who said, you know what, if you haven't got that foundational yeah. part in, yeah. people won't open up about what they're really thinking about work if they don't feel that they've got a so, human relationship with you. And so that's another way for me of thinking about that, that trust one. So I'm curious yeah. what your, your thoughts are there about how you get that right. Yeah. Totally right. So I've heard that again from clients. So, um, you know, in talking to them or coaching them or whatever it might be, we have gone into explore, exploring workloads because, again, they're too busy. So we're trying to help them navigate through that. And then they start talking about things like that. And they said, you know what, actually, now you've said that I know more about my team, their life, their house, what goes on with them than I ever did before. And I feel a different connection to them. And I've asked them and I said, well, have you shared that with them? And they're like, no. I'm like, Why not? It's almost like, 
I didn't think I should. It's like, well, try and see what they do. And when they then came back and said they'd done that, the team were almost resplendent in the fact that they identified them as a human being with all the foibles of life. And and that, that opened up a different conversation about pressures, workloads, and so on. So I think you're right. I think when we identify as human beings first, we can be much more comfortable with saying, actually, I'm finding it really difficult to focus in the pattern that I'm working to homeschooling and can we do something differently it's a tough question to broach but i think we're getting to see a lot more empathetic responses to that and i think that is creating more trust i've heard people in again client organizations say i never saw the ceo as much as i did during lockdown because of the broadcast stuff and open listening stuff that they would do and so i felt like i'd got a real channel there to understand what what i was part of so in some cases, I think we've enhanced that sense of connection to purpose and meaning and, and so on, which you and I have talked about in the past, Jeff, as like a really strong thread for people to hold on to when things get a bit wobbly. So yeah. I think COVID's forced that in a nice way. And then I think those people who've been neglectful of those human factors have almost shown up double bad during this because of their lack of consideration or their lack of flexibility and so people are like as soon as this is over and I can find somewhere else I'm leaving because that is not how I needed you to be for me so I think looking out for people showing care duty of care that kind of thing I think that's come across incredibly strongly in this and has created different elements of trust and relationship and dialogue that I hope we continue and I suppose that leads us on to I suppose one of the ways in which you talk about in the book um, to create this sort of energized place is through this model of self-management which you know we've just spoken about has sort of naturally evolved because of the situation we found ourselves in um i suppose just it'd be great to get some more examples of what that looks like even pre-covid um because some of it maybe was a little bit controversial um in terms of the the amount of flexibility the amount of liberty the amount of self-management and self-direction um, so I'd love to get some some examples from you on, yeah. on that model. For sure. I think pre-COVID, I came at it from um, a couple of angles, really, which is almost like the agency that I wanted to see people have in the work to do a lot more determining what, what was value for them, if, if that makes sense, that pursuit of I make a difference, that kind of thing. And I found that some management structures got in the way of that and interfered with it and created friction. Then I found another angle, which is that the more management layers you have, the more bureaucracy you have, and therefore the more work you have. So it circles back to the peak work conversation, because I think some of the peak work stuff are things we've created. It's work about work. It isn't the actual work. Yeah. <laughs> and so <laughs> Gary Hamill talks about this as like a $3 trillion question. If we can solve that, we can save the economy $3 trillion. Yeah. It's, isn't it like the classic one of, uh, and, and this is one I struggle with, so any help you can give me on this, I'd appreciate. But the amount of meetings that I, you know, film myself at where people want to tell me the state of a, of a project that's all green, right? As if, you know, and their point is they want to show what a great job they've done. So I feel obliged to listen. Yeah. But in reality, it's like, if it's green, 
well done. I trust you. You know, you're doing a good job. You don't need to spend 10 minutes telling me how you've made great progress and we're all green. What I really want to do is get to the meter where you're stuck and you need help. So um, I think, uh, you know, any help, any tips you've got on that would be, you know, greatly appreciated. So uh, I I can actually, uh, Jeff. So in the self-managed world uh, that I've sort of researched quite extensively, probably for about the last 15 years, there are lots of practices that replace things like meetings and, and all hands and so on. And so there's two practices I really like. One is from the agile world, where at the end of a project, you have a retrospective that looks back on what you did and what went well and what didn't. And that's the time to celebrate the stuff that was on green, right? That's the time when you go, nice job, brilliant. So I think it's great to program them in. And it would be good if, you know, you're the leader and your teams have done great to involve you in the retrospective. That's the point where I think it matters most. Then the other one that's introduced in self-managed organizations is, is they often call them tension meetings where there's a tension now the tension could be that you are showing tension because your deadline is in jeopardy because of relying on other people who haven't complied your tension is you haven't scoped the project right you haven't got enough resource whatever it might be now some people might say well isn't that point of failure or lack of planet it doesn't matter it's a tension and the idea is you call a meeting with somebody who you need to help you relieve that tension create a solution even if it's just some confidence boosting tips to get through this period because your experience will tell you you know what you probably have got enough resource let's just see what you do to get to the next stage in the process and then we'll talk about resourcing again so it's a bit of coaching it's a bit of project update but talking about it as attention removes the fact that they might feel guilty they've let you down or they expect you to be angry with them or something when you wouldn't be so you call the meeting as a tension meeting because that's the tension you want to solve and it's all about it not about you as people those are self-managed practices that i really like because they take accountability really seriously um, but they're not formulaic and routine and sort of perfunctory in the way you describe the you know the green meetings they're almost like they're not habitual they're circumstantial but they're really important i i think one of the things just uh you know i wouldn't want to give people the impression that we're you know all about just sort of sitting through sort of dull meetings so if accused you be defensive here i think one of the things that's really helped us and i'm curious as to whether you think we're along the right track here is um, we've adopted a tool which is um, allows us to have a weekly check-in and a lot of that is what made you feel great and what made you feel what you know we do what did you love and loathe about your week and you get into that and what made you feel strong and weak in, in you know in some of the activities I think the most important thing there is something I'm a deep believer in which is just taking that time to be reflective yeah. um, I've said that although my you know that gets i fill that out and my boss gets to see that and that works with everyone in at adp um i've always i've said to people for me it's 70 percent about me reflecting and it's about 30 percent making sure that you know my boss understands what's going on in my world and that you get that important alignment bit because i think what what i think that tool has been great at is making me realize oh i didn't know that was what they consider to be important or even sometimes they'll mention something that's going on um in their personal life you go oh great this is an opportunity to do that um and what i've also been interested in in there perry just is that that it's amazing there are some people who are not necessarily that open in a face-to-face environment like the the call that we're on now and yet they're incredibly expressive in written sense they'll they'll pull their heart out in that check-in um in a way that they will not do 
you know, even though I've never, I have known them for years and try and encourage, encourage it. So I find it's really interesting, the different communication styles and how that's come into play for us. It's been fascinating. And, and I think it's working, you know, from my perspective, it's been, um, it's been a really, really great journey for us. And I think we're getting a lot from it. So I wondered if you thought what you thought about that type of, yeah. of approach where you give people that space to collect their thoughts and think how their week was going and, and, and share that. I'm really pleased to hear it, Jeff, because what I see in the self-managed world is a deliberate way of doing that. Because in the non-self-managed world, managers tend to check up on their teams. And that's sometimes duty yeah. of care, sometimes is the project on track, whatever it might be. But when you don't have that management kind of structure in a self-managed uh, team, you could feel like you're a bit neglected or lost or isolated or disconnected. So check-ins absolutely do that. And I've seen them work terrifically well in the healthcare world. Now, let's say if you're working on, a, uh, on an ICU situation, you don't have time to sit down with pleasantries, but actually you do need to rely on people so i know for a fact that people on icu type emergency duty always have a check-in how are we feeling who's tired who needs to look out for who yep. what's going on it's absolutely essential for that team to function in that way and it just creates that little human bond now to your point about um different medium for, for doing that i think you're absolutely right i think for a long time the extrovert world of a meeting where somebody can speak right. up and hold the space has suddenly been somewhat flattened in favor of reflective thought through audio files, like we said earlier on, or through the written word, or through channels like this. So I'm hopeful that what we've done now is we've kind of equalized a little bit the noise and taken a little bit more of a stronger step into volume equal across the team. Um, and to the written point, um, as a team, we check in at different times because depending on school runs or, or parts yeah. of the world, and we write in a check-in every day that says, this is what my day looks like. This is what happened to me yesterday. Um, we've even created a channel on our Slack board called Safe Space, where we can put in anything we feel really quite vulnerable about. Um, and so we've deliberately created a space where you can collect your thoughts and share something. So I, as an example, um, wrote a little bit in Safe Space about cancel culture. You know, people were talking about Yep, yep. Uh, and I talked about an example where that had happened to me and how it how I felt about it and what was going on and the team came back and went we had no idea that that was how you would you feel like you pop up on social channels and everything's right um, so yeah I think it created a different dialogue between us and I, I like you love the reflectiveness that's come from this slightly slower way of uh, approaching your thought process that you're not running from thing to thing anymore okay zoom to zoom get it but you're not having to be you know literally traveling in, in that same way so yeah I, I think it's right that we should have that human moment of how are we what's important to us and what can we do to help each other out what, what experiments are going on what's working yeah so I, I would say i was at a slight advantage in understanding the dynamic of working in a dispersed fashion where you couldn't like see a scrum board in an office anymore with post-it mm. notes on that we're talking about backlogs or you couldn't see a pile of work or you didn't have those sort of regular sort of conversational aspects about work so the concept i um uh, came across a few years ago was the concept of working out loud and it came from Deutsche Bank 
um, and a guy called John Stepper, who was in the early days of social technologies, asking people to surface their workloads from out of their inboxes or their corporate systems so that people could see what people were working on. And there was almost like a public accountability come, oh, I can see that you've got a big stack of work there. I could take some of that off you and help. So it was communalizing, I suppose, uh, what work was being done by a team and agile teams in, in the way I described them on the scrum boards with post-it notes is a similar version to that. Now, digitally, in terms of replicating that, yes, we've created a system where we put all our tasks in full view of everybody and we can see if things get a little bit left behind. We can have a conversation, say, it looks like you might need some help. Is there something that's stopping progress happening? So we can interrogate the task and not the person. Um, and we can help the person understand that the public display of their work is not to shame them into performance, but it's to illustrate what we're up to, how we're doing, how we can pivot and adapt and almost respond to it hour by hour. So we've done a lot of that. And then when I've been working with clients, similar things have happened. People's workloads is often stuffed in an inbox or a CRM system or something. And people feel like nobody cares about the fact that they've got a backlog. And it's like, well, we need to socialize that. We need to make it a more communal conversation and practice. So, yeah, I think part of the self-management ethos of kind of help yourself to the work, not have it allocated and thrown at you, has, I think, manifested in the way people have had to tackle their work during COVID-19. Um, distribution, allocation, that kind of thing. Um, so I'm thinking that the practices of self-management in that respect of, of having more say about what you step into and choose to do in the spirit of the team, knowing what their goal is, etc., has probably become more pronounced and more dialogic and more shared because you're not sat with people. You can't have that casual conversation with them. So you've had to create a system that helps you do that. Um, and that's why things like Teams, Threads, Planner, um, Jira, Basecamp, Asana, all these platforms that do project management, I think are now starting to thrive because people are saying that's where I need to put the work so people can see the work and can get the work and we can monitor track and evaluate progress that way so yeah I, I think that practice has started to come through in lockdown and I suspect with a hybrid option of some people in an office some people not I think that public display of what the work is that's being done I think it'll have to continue you've started to touch on technology there which is a really interesting one I think um, we've seen um, you know the good and bad of technology I mean quite you I think we've all felt um certainly you touched on it a lot of us have felt um a degree of sort of uh video call fatigue and um you know as uh and that only gets worse um as we uh, are unable to kind of you know book a kind of hair appointment or whatever it might be right um so we become more conscious of, of some of these things because we we're one of the simple things that we've now got used to is that we're now actually looking at ourselves for many hours every day, right? When we never did that, right? We didn't walk around with a mirror in front of ourselves, right? You know, conscious of what we were, and maybe some of that's good because maybe, you know, we're improving our body language. I don't know. But I think on the other hand, one of the things that's definitely been um, a plus of, of this has been for when we've got remote colleagues, certainly in our case, we felt, we've never felt as close together in the sense that everyone's got their rectangle on the screen. Um, and I think we were quite fortunate that we literally were moving to um, th this kind of technology just ahead of COVID. It was, so we were just landed at the right place. But prior to that, we'd often have meetings where nine people are in the room and one person was on a conference call. And 
They didn't necessarily hear everything that was being said. They certainly missed the body language. And quite often they just felt like they missed the joke. That, those people are now saying they feel like they've got, you know, a, an even place at the uh, at the table, if you like. Yeah. Uh, but I'm really interested in how that technology goes forward. I was talking to somebody from Microsoft recently who said, look, we're getting this incredible data now. Um, and maybe we can combine AI with this data to actually help you guide when is the right time in your day to do various things on your to-do list. At time you might actually do that thing that's been sitting ninth on your on your to-do list, right? Your energy levels might be at the right point. Uh, you know, there's but with that obviously comes the, the concerns about how is that data being used, and you know, how do we ensure that um, management uh, are not kind of uh, dialing in too much on this stuff for example and you know and taking it kind of too literally so i i am optimistic i will put this about the role of technology i'm seeing i think we're going to see more in the way of innovation around technology and what we're using now in the kind of various teams tools i think we're going to see that very much as generation one and a few years from now it's um it's going to be sort of greatly advanced but i guess i'm saying there are i have some concerns there that some some things i may be getting ahead of myself and not and I've got to look at the risks as well. I mean, what's your what's your view on that sort of technology? And I guess this is essentially how do you see another way of saying how do you see us emerging and and changing maybe in a different way that we would have done had it not been for COVID in the years ahead? I think I'm a lot like you in that planning for it ahead wasn't something I, I did, but naturally were gravitating towards the technological kind of connections. So I've always been fascinated by Slack boards and alternatives to email, things that feel more human and so on. So there's a couple of things that, uh, that I'll mention there is I think you're right about this almost being like generation one of a truly digitally first organization yeah. i think we're definitely in that space now because you know you you would have seen this when you went to client sites perhaps like i did you walked into an office and often it was stony silent there wasn't a chatter or buzz because people had earbuds in and they were typing into a machine yeah. <laughs> and i thought to myself you could be anywhere doing that. and they're emailing each other when exactly. they're sitting next to yeah exactly right you i know. think we've bust that farcical uh, approach of what somebody once described as a white collar factory I think that's just exactly yeah. what we've now started to say. We don't need to do that. There's a lovely quote by a guy who's a very good thinker out there from the US called Stowe Boyd. And he said, on site are now going to be what we used to do off site. Um, when we used to go off site to do a strategy or imagination day, that's what we will come together mm. to do. We will come it's together reverse. for the tactility, for the eyeballs, for the real mm bonus type thinking we need to do uh, but that's how organizations like um, automatic and buffer and so on have been doing it for ages they disperse and then they come together quite ritualistically but purposefully for a short period of time to continue to create the human bonds but with a purpose that we can only do this stuff in real life. The rest of the work we do, we can do in a virtual sense. So I think that's what we're going to see a lot more of. So I roll my eyes when I see Goldman Sachs saying, yeah, we're all going to go back to the office and, and so on. And I'm like, I really consider that retrograde and, and retrospective kind of thinking because we've discovered different things so to just simply revert back is a real waste in my view but we do recognize that there are limitations challenges and some issues that we need to address about the virtual side of things becoming a predominant um not ignoring you know the whole industry that's around presence and all that kind of stuff i'm not ignoring that at all i'm just saying that i think we could discover a new form of localism a new form of co-working um so i imagine us 
wanting to get more imaginative about how we create variety yet convenience that we've discovered through this kind of mechanism and just how strong and equalizing um, you you talked about and I want to come back to that because I think that's so right I did some work with a client in housing brilliant piece of innovation um, and we were we were using uh, mural boards and, and it was like silent innovation just bursting out everywhere and I thought my goodness this is as good as being in a room with people and post-it notes on the wall but just less an extrovert frenzy right turns out that my client um, uh, was in a wheelchair and uh, and he said you know what the best thing about running these meetings online is i don't feel disadvantaged because i'm sat right yeah everybody's writing on post-it notes at the top of the wall yep. and i thought yep. oh, this stuff's genius i know i know that's a love that that's a wonderful story i, I i've um i have wondered about that it's great to hear an example of that i've been wondering what this has been like for you know for people that you know that are wheelchair bound etc you know difficulty yeah. in movement so um I mean, that's, that's a question. I've used the word discover a few times there, and, yeah. and, I'm, and I kind of can't help but latch on to that discover word because um, I, I'm, a, I'm really hopeful that we can be more willing to have deliberate experiments. Yeah. I, I think that there's been, for me, um, one of the reasons I, I will advocate, I haven't got necessarily the proof of this, is that one of the reasons I think we maybe have had issues with engagement in the past is that this sort of desire for the center to dictate policy based on someone else's view of what good is right you know so um you know i am i am not saying that certain car companies didn't get to be very good through a focus on processes but you know just taking what worked for one organization and assuming it's naturally going to work for every other organization on the planet seems to me to be um not the way right way to go but um I'm really optimistic and hopeful that we will have more experimentation and say, let's try, especially in this, as we're trying to discover what is the right way for us as, an, as, a, as a unique organization, as we all are, to find out how we work together, what works for some, what works for others, and be more um, curious about how we actually kind of build a sort of, you know, build the data to prove that out as opposed to having the kind of you know, let's face it, typically alpha male leader determined, no, this is the uh, the think tank says this and this is the policy that, that we're going to roll out here. So that just, I think that could be one more inclusive because everyone gets a voice in that. But yeah. secondly, I think it will help us with something which I think is a challenging part of the self-managed workplace, which is how do you find the compromises and explain the compromises that you inevitably need to make as you try to scale that out against against larger and larger organizations. So again, interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I'll, I'll start with the end of that phrase about the larger organizations. I think you're absolutely right. And we are seeing like the Goldman Sachs announcement, just these big blanket things. And I'm like, you are ignoring the fact that your organization is made up of subcultures, small units, teams that are closely knitted and all that kind of stuff. So I just don't buy that anybody has the right to unilaterally just say this is it. It just is not it. So we need to go to that almost like atomized level that you're talking about, which is why why am I together with these people doing this thing? And do I need space where we are co-located or can we do it a different way? So I think that's almost like the, the level that you're talking about, which is lots of little experiments that reveal evidence and create the yeah. right outcome. And I think organizations could do very wisely to not start from a macro level, but maybe start yeah. from a, a even a micro or a meso level in between it, the smaller units of bonded people 
Now, but there's a conflict there between like some, yeah. you know, in the, in a lot of corporate world, like love the, you know, how can we be standardized and, yeah. you know, and, and how do you, whereas for me, I've always thought there's a com conflict between yeah. the appeal of standardization and trying to find the one size fits all versus the let's have deliberately allow different things to happen so we can discover what may be the best is whether there is in fact a universal standard yeah. or whether we just need to have those different i kind of think of it as a classic onion of you're going to yeah. have different things that work in different places yeah i think you're right i think all the organizations i've researched that are self-managed use something like an onion analogy circles that are either concentric or interlocked and so i think the crucial thing is not hierarchical cascades it is aggregated connected circles i think you're absolutely right about the visual metaphor to put in mind for that um yeah again i think as you were talking this this standardization thing reminds me of the oscar wilde quote where he says consistency is the last refuge of the unimaginative and I just kind of like think <laughs> at a time like now. I have to be really careful where I use that quote, but yeah, um, I love it. <laughs> exactly. So I think, you know, we need more imaginative ways to deal with the response out of something we've never experienced. Jeff's writing down the quote. I'm writing that one down. Okay, cool. Oscar Wilde, I'll have you know. Exactly. There you go. You see, a little bit of poetry in a podcast is never a Sorry, Perry. I interrupted No worries. You. I love it. <laughs> Love some poetry. Yeah. Now, the other thing I'll, I'll reference here, Jeff, and I did quote it in the book, is the um, Richard Barrett, Barrett Value Center um, work that I referenced about values. Um, and so um, in it, he has a model that starts with um, survival instincts, a little bit like Maslow's hierarchy, right? Now, at level four, he talks about transformation. And that's what we've gone through. No matter what you think about this, this is a transformative impact on all of us. But up above Above that, you have internal cohesion, you have then making a difference and service to humanity. Now, they're really grand aspirations at the top of that. But I think we're now looking at how do we create this internal cohesion? And I don't think you do it as a blanket thing. You have to do it in these little units and cells. Then you can start thinking about the difference that you make. And then the rest, I think, works itself out. So, so I do think the clues are there, um, uh, but I don't think the solution is a broad brush. I think it's intricate, smaller patterns put together. I was going to ask you, um perry about your um your wellness wednesday because oh, i love yeah. it um mm. whether that's a permanent feature that's come out of the, the pandemic yeah yeah so again that's you know part part of the whole picture isn't it yeah. the employee well-being part yeah. um and applying the buzzwords that are yeah. out there um you're actually doing it you're on a four four day operating week yeah. Um, and I love you're out of office and I'll respond to your message with more energy, creativity and application when I'm back. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so that's working well. Yeah, it has. Kind of so we started that in July, uh, still going on. And we're now a gold standard approved four day working week employer. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's the, the a lot of people question the choice and go, why Wednesday? Why not a Friday or a Monday to avoid, mm. you know, and create a long weekend? And, and our answer to that was, well, actually, the long weekend sometimes is a little bit harder to get going <laughs> after you've mm. had three days off. So we thought two days on punctuate, recalibrate, recover. In my case, it's often read or, or something. And then two days back on again. Um, what's been amazing is client responses. A lot of clients have come back and went, oh, I'm sorry I'm interrupting your Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> they really don't want to do it. Brilliant. <laughs> so that's really sweet. And, uh, and a few people have said they want to try and replicate that and practice it themselves. So who knows? But, yeah, we're really committed to it because it's given us a, a, just that midweek burst 
of two mm. days really full on, a day off and then two more on. And uh, yeah, we're committed to it. Great stuff. Well, anything's possible, right? Yeah. Um, cool. Okay. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Unfortunately, we could talk forever. I think there's so many different themes and topics. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> My <laughs> biggest regret is normally notes. <laughs> if we were, if I was seeing Perry, we would do something like this and then go, let's go and find a bar and carry on. Exactly. And then, you know, yeah. we, we, we'd be there for the rest of the We can't do that anymore. No. No, but thank you so much for taking the time. Um, great to be able to do this virtually. It saved you a trip into into Chertsey, so maybe this wouldn't have been possible so quickly. So fantastic to have you on to get your insight and your food for thought. And as always, Jeff, thank you for your contributions. Pleasure. Thank you. See you soon. Bye. Bye.